Every message we have at New Spring, whether it's a Kids World message or it's a song that we sing or a message that we bring here on stage, all comes down to one thing, and that is trust your life to Jesus Christ. Come as you are and let him take you like a potter takes a lump of clay and makes it into a masterpiece. I, I know sometimes I probably can be a little bit too over the top when I say that I hate religion. I hope you always understand, I don't mean I hate the people in religion, I just hate the systems. Because the systems of religion say that if you do what we say do, if you jump through the hoops, then you will be accepted. On the other hand, God says, come as you are. And now, when we come to him as we are, he doesn't leave us as he found us. It's just that no one can get his or her life all tied up in a neat package with a bow and give it to God. That's the problem with religion. Nobody can jump through enough hoops. So everything here, all of our message comes down to trust your life to Jesus Christ. Let him have your life. And I think that it's as simple as that. Now, of course, there are all kinds of things that we can talk about from that moment on. But I do know this. I know that many people who attend our church or part of our experiences here are explorers. In fact, I have friends who are non-theists, you know, who will say to me from time to time, Mark, I hope you don't mind us attending New Spring. And I always say, you're who gets me up in the morning. Because I'm so thankful that people are here to explore. And one of the things that we have as part of our DNA here at New Spring is it's a good place to ask questions. It's a safe place. Many of us grew up in religions where you were kind of shut down and said, you know, someone said, don't ask the question. We always feel like questions are a good thing. And beyond that, if we can't answer the questions, maybe it's time for us to rethink whatever opinion about life we may have. But in that, there are those, I think, who could come to us today who follow Jesus Christ and ask the question, why should I follow Jesus? What would I get out of following Jesus that I can't have in my life today? Because very clearly, following Jesus is a life. It's, it's not a religion. It's a seven-day-a-week changed life. And I think it's a fair question for someone who's not a Christ follower to ask me, why would I be better off if I accepted what you're saying? You know, for this is my 35th year here at New Spring, and God has grown us from like 350 people on a weekend to probably six or 7,000 today. And our staff has grown with it. Our campus has expanded. So during the week, I often hear from leaders who say, we need a piece of equipment, or we need another staff person, or we need a building. And the question I've always asked as leader is, tell me what we'll be able to do with that that we can't do today. Because I always feel like if there's not an answer to that question, if we can't do something that we can't do right now, then it's not worth spending time, resources, and energy on. And I just think it's a fair question for someone who might be a non-theist or an agnostic to ask us, why would I be better off if I follow Jesus? Now, for the next seven weeks, I want to do my best to answer that question. I want to give you a defense with hopefully without being defensive. I want to share with you seven reasons from the Word of God, seven claims that a Christ follower can make that make this way of life a life worth living. I do know this. If you're not a Christ follower or if you're a skeptic or an agnostic, it could be that one of the reasons why you are where you are and you're not a Christ follower is that the messages that you've got from Christ followers about what the Christian life is is so garbled that you've had a hard time sorting through what, is, what exactly we're talking about. And there's a reason for that. And this may come as a surprise to you if you're a, a questioner, 
that many people who are Christ followers don't know what they have. When they came to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they may have joined a church, they may have joined a Bible study group, those are wonderful things, and they may have learned some things, but many Christ followers, if not most Christ followers, don't know what they have. I remember the first time we had a staff person who led worship was, I think, in 1994. Before that, we'd had a volunteer leader. But the staff person who came to join our staff, and again, the church was only at about four or 500 in those days, the staff person had a long track, record, long track record of leading great church worship programs. It was more in the traditional vein, the choir and the orchestra and the robes and all that kind of thing. But this guy had developed some of the worship ministries of very large churches in the United States. And so when he came to serve our family of faith, he said early on that he wanted to start an orchestra. We'd never had an orchestra. And he looked on our congregation. He said, some of you played instruments when you were in high school. Some of you played instruments in college. And he said, you put them down. You haven't picked them up in a while. He said, I want you to pick them up and play on them a little while. And then he said, we'll have an audition and then we'll start an orchestra. And he did. He started a really nice orchestra. We were at dinner one night, him and his wife, Mary Alice and I, and I don't know how the word got out. I'm guessing I told him that Mary Alice had played saxophone in high school. Hey, I can still see her in my mind with that neck strap and the saxophone, you know? And, and so I said, hey, you know, Mary Alice played saxophone. And he said, great, you're going to play in the orchestra. Mary Alice thought she had the coup de gras response because she said, I don't have a saxophone. He said, that's not a problem. He said, the last church I served, he said, somebody gave me a saxophone. He said, it's a ratty old thing. He said, lacquer's flaking off. The case looks wretched. And he said, nobody's played it in years. But he said, it was given to me. I'm going to give it to you, and you can see if you're interested. Well, to my surprise, Mary Alice played on a little bit and discovered that she was really enjoying playing saxophone after all those years. So I said to her, if you're really interested in that, you know, if you're really enjoying playing, We'll either work on this saxophone and get it re-lacquered and, you know, put new cord, uh, cork and pads on it. And we'll, you know, it, it, we'll, we'll put some money in it. Or I said, it's probably a piece of junk and it's probably not worth it. I probably just need to buy you a new saxophone. Well, in those days, we had a music store here in Wichita called Starkey Music. And their technicians were geniuses. They were the very best of the very best. I mean, these are guys that ate, slept, drank musical instruments. And so I took this ratty old case with this old saxophone over there and their top reed guy came out and he, he started looking at it and while he was looking at it I said I know it's a piece of junk I probably need to buy a new sax I'm just trying to see if this is worth putting anything into he held it up and looked at it for a few moments and then he said do you know what you have I said what do you mean he said you don't know what you have do you he said, this particular model of sax, it's a particular con saxophone from the 30s and 40s. He said, it's the most sought after alto sax for jazz musicians. He said, the sound that comes out of these things is amazing. He said, don't you dare touch the lacquer. It will affect the sound. He said, this thing is probably worth thousands of dollars. I'll tell you, at that point, I bought the nicest case I could buy. I bought the nicest mouthpiece I could buy. We had it re-padded, re-corked. I mean, and it was, it, it was an heirloom in our house. Stephen played it all the way through high school at Andover, played in the jazz band. And to this day, we look at that sax and we think about that moment where that specialist said, you don't know what you have. See, for those of you who are not Christ followers and you struggle to figure out why we follow Jesus, 
The reason why you're probably struggling in large part is a lot of us who are Christ followers, we don't know what we have. And consequently, we're not always good at articulating. We don't know what we have and you don't know what you're missing. So what this series is all about is I wanna show you what a Christ follower has. I wanna give you a defense for why I follow Jesus. Well, if you're not a Christ follower, you could say, well, why don't you know what you have? Well, that's where we get the title DNA. Because you see, here's the thing. We don't have, Christ followers, we don't have what we have because we achieved it. We have what we have because it was given to us. It is organic. That's why Jesus said, you, you have to be born again. This is not something that you do like steps to a religion. This is something that God does inside of you. And because it is something organic, like DNA that God does, that's the reason why many of us don't know what we have. So I want to file a flight plan with you. I want to give you these seven promises that the Bible tells us about, and we're going to talk about one for each week for the next seven weeks. They all come from four successive chapters in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. If someone said to me, Mark, you can only preach out of four successive chapters in the Bible, I wouldn't blink for a second. I would know which ones I would take. I would take 2 Corinthians 3 through 6 because these are the chapters that spell out the Christian life. And so here are the seven claims. We begin today with I am a new person. Next week, I see more, I see before. Week three, very special message. I have value you cannot see. Number four, I will live forever. Number five, I'm getting stronger every day. Number six, I have a purpose that matters. And number seven, my personal favorite, I can't lose. So those are the seven claims that every Christ follower can make. And here's what will happen, I believe, if you're here for this series. If you're not a Christ follower, you may still not be at the end of the series, but I think you're going to say, I wish I could say these things. And if you're a Christ follower, you're going to say, I had no idea how rich I was and how special my life is. So here we go. Let's plunge right in. First of all, let's talk about the four chapters. It is the Christian life in, in, in capsule. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul begins to introduce this section. He said the old way with laws etched in stone led to death. That's the commandments that came and the punishments for failing to keep the commandments. The old way with laws etched in stone led to death. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, that's like when Moses received the law, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? So these four chapters are all about the Christian life. It is about the new way that Jesus brings. So let's start. Let's jump right in. If you have 2 Corinthians, and I hope you have your Bible with you or have an electronic device with the Bible app, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. And here we go. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Take a deep breath. Absorb that. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Some of you have a translation that says a new creation. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Now, time out. 
When I was a kid growing up, I heard ministers preach this text, and they, it's a wonderful text. It's like one of the mountain peaks of the Bible. And they would stop at the end of verse 17. If any person is in Christ, that person becomes a new person. And I would hear that and think, well, I accepted Christ when I was eight years old, but sometimes I don't feel like a new person. The reason why I think a lot of the confusion exists is because the ministers didn't go on to read verse 18, because verse 18 says, right after the part about becoming a new person, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. So it is through what Christ has done for us that any Christ follower can say, legitimately so, I am a new person. That's a massive statement, because the best this world can offer you whether you're talking about technology or philosophy or religion or education, the best this world can offer you is improvement. Nothing else can offer you the becoming of a new person. There's a lot of difference between something being new and improved. Now, I'm giving away my age like I did earlier in the service. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, which are kind of the golden age of television advertising. Now, I'm sure that those advertising specialists, the mad men on Madison Avenue, sat down and they thought about which were the most powerful buzzwords they could use in advertising. And I guess the two that they liked the best were new and improved. Because when I was a kid growing up, there were so many products that were advertised as new and improved. My goodness, Tide detergent must have been new and improved 35 times. The new Ford you know, was new and improved. Now, I don't know if we ever think through this stuff, but semantically that is technically impossible for something to be new and improved. If it's improved, it's not new. Right? But you know how advertising is. It doesn't necessarily require truth. I, <laughs> I just want you to understand the Bible is making a massive claim here. I am a new person. You know, we say every once in a while, I feel like a new person. Typically, it's like if, you've, you know, if you work long hours and you don't get sleep you know, for a full night and you get a full eight hours sleep and we wake up and we say, wow, I feel like a new person. Or maybe you get over the flu and you think, I feel like a new person. But we know we're not new. We just feel better. The issue with Christians is we are new, but we don't feel like it. Now, how can that be? Again, if a person is a little bit skeptical of all this, you could say, well, Mark, I don't understand that. How can you claim that you are a new person, but you don't feel new? Here's the answer to that. It's because the life that we lived before we came to Christ still echoes in us today. And so it's hard for us to get away from the identity we had before we knew Christ and see ourselves as fully new. Let me give you a human illustration of that. And again, if you're under 40, you will have no idea what I'm talking about. But in the early 60s, when I was a very little kid, there was a sitcom about a family whose entire experience had been back in the woods. They didn't have any exposure at all to modern conveniences. But according to the theme song of the sitcom, the guy was out hunting. He was shooting at food and up through the ground came a bubbling crude, right? Yeah. The Beverly Hillbillies. Now, what was really strange was they moved to Beverly Hills from where they had lived, and now they are coming into acquaintance with all kinds of 
modern things that they had no idea how to interpret. For instance, they came to the mansion that had been bought for them uh, by the banker, and the mansion had walls and gates around it. And when they saw it, they thought it was a prison that they were being taken to. When the servants came out to greet them, they thought they were inmates escaping the prison. They didn't know why the pond, the cement pond in their backyard had all the fish killed, but they did find that it was a good place to wash their clothes with the handmade soap that they made, even though they had millions of dollars. And for 12 years, we laughed at the Beverly Hillbillies because they were in a new existence, but their old ways of thinking kept echoing. Now, some of you are listening to that and you're saying, silly, silly 60s television, that's impossible. Not really. There's a part of Texas, and I'm from Texas, so I can criticize Texas. There's a part of Texas called the Permian Basin. It is the ugliest part of the world. I mean, it is just wretched, however God made it up to them. But I mean, it was just really, really ugly. There was a couple there named Ira and Ann Gates about 100 years ago who bought a ranch to raise sheep. That's a bad idea because there's no grass there. Well, sure enough, they just about lost everything. They, they couldn't make their mortgage payment. They were on federal existence. But along came a geologist and said that he would like to drill a test well on their property. And they said, well, okay, you can't lose anything. He did, and that's one of the biggest oil fields in West Texas is still producing 100 years later. And when Ira and Ann, by the way, the name of the town now is Ira Ann, Texas, named after Ira and Ann Gates, In 1929, when the rest of the nation was in the depths of the Depression, their oil income in today's dollars was $1.8 million a day. So yeah, I mean, just like Beverly Hillbillies, that kind of stuff happens. But it's always a challenge, isn't it, when we have a way of life and suddenly we're brought into a new situation. It's not easy to make sense of that. Well... This is what the Bible is telling us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. So you understand the reason why we have a new life is a gift from God. But by the same token, we have all these years of history in the past. Now, with the brief time that we have left in this message, I think we ought to ask four questions. And the first question that I think is incumbent upon us to deal with is the why question. Why did this whole thing come up? See, here's the thing. If I'm not a new person because of something I do, and there wasn't anything that I initiated in order to become a new person, then somehow this process has to exist in the universe, and I want to know why it existed. Well, in our part of the scripture here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul tells us, and this is Beautiful. So read it with me. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light. Light there kind of refers to truth. Glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. This is huge right here. Verse 6. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's unpack that just so that we'll understand. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and your life has become new just as God says it would, something very important has happened. 
God commanded the light to shine in your darkness. Now, Paul is saying, the same God who commanded the light to shine in your darkness is the God who commanded the light to shine in creation. When you go back to Genesis chapter 1, there's some interesting stuff there that relates to our experience with Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's not a whole lot of, God doesn't put a lot of footnotes in the book of Genesis. So there there are a lot of questions that we have, and the language is a little bit cryptic. There are Bible scholars who believe something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. Because verse 2 says, the earth was without form and void and darkness covered the earth. So there are scholars who say, don't know exactly when God created the earth, but something happened and it wasn't good. And there are those who take the next step and they say, perhaps that is when Satan was cast out of heaven, cast down to earth. I don't know. That's, that's above my pay grade. Some of the stuff we won't know until we get to heaven. But we do know what, tell, what the Bible tells us in verse 2. The Bible says a really interesting thing. It says the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, brooded over the darkness. Now, brooded is an odd verb. To brood means to grieve. Now, if indeed the theologians are correct and something did happen between verse 1 and verse 2 and it wasn't good and darkness covers the earth, then it would explain why the Spirit of God grieved, brooded over the darkness. But immediately following that, God said, let there be light. And he called light out of the darkness. That helps us understand what happens the moment we accept Christ. The Spirit of God broods and grieves over the darkness. I mean, something happened in our life. Adam sinned and we've sinned too. And the Spirit of God grieves over that darkness. But God has said, let there be light. And here's the thing. When we tell our story, it's like, well, I went to this church and I heard this message. Or my mom told me this. Or or I read about it. Or I went to a Bible study. Or I watched something on television. We have all these earthly elements of the narrative. But what really happened, however it played out... The Spirit of God grieved over the darkness that was in your life, and God himself called the light out of the darkness, and you saw the light, and you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why it happened. If you, I accepted Christ when I was eight years old on the playground in my school in Fort Worth, Texas. I'd been over to get a drink. I remembered something that the preacher said the day before, and I prayed to receive Christ. That's my earthly story But what really happened was God looked down from heaven and he loved Mark Hoover and he called for the light to shine out of the darkness and it's still shining. Now, I I stopped at the end of verse six there. I want to go ahead and read verse seven because I I can be skeptical. I, I, I was a debater in high school and college and so consequently... I'm sort of trained to be skeptical. And and if I'm sitting out there or if I'm watching online or watching on television or North Auditorium, if I were a skeptic, I would say, well, wait a minute, Mark. You say that you're a new person. God has shined the light in your life, but your life doesn't always match up to what you say. Well, verse 7 explains that to us. It says, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. We'll talk about this in an upcoming message, but in those days, there was no uh, property insurance. And people who had jewelry, diamonds, and 
pearls and emeralds, people that had jewelry a lot of times who were well-to-do, they would, they would be concerned about thieves breaking into their home and stealing. And they knew that thieves would go to particular areas of the house to look for these precious gems. So oftentimes what they would do is they would take nondescript clay pots that would have no important purpose at all. A lot of times families had, you know, boxes of these clay pots that were for all kinds of unimportant purposes. And they would drop that pearl necklace in there because if a thief came in, the last place they would look for a pearl necklace was in a clay pot. And Paul is saying, yeah, we feel this tension. We feel this juxtaposition. On one hand, we're a new person. God has commanded the light to shine out of darkness. And we feel that sometimes. How many of us felt it when we were, when we were singing Chainbreaker a little while ago? We felt that light. We said, yeah, I am a new person. And then we have a bad day and somebody cuts us off in traffic and we're trying to make hand signs to them. <laughs> and it's like, am I really a new person? I'm not excusing us for anything that we do wrong. It's just this issue. We are still fragile clay pots, but we sure contain a treasure. So that's the why. God, it's all of God. I didn't think up God. God thought up me. Secondly is the how question. You know, I've talked to people who were non-believers before, and I've told them, you know, I've told them I knew I was going to heaven. And they would misunderstand sometimes and say, well, you must really think you're something to be sure you're going to heaven. And of course, that's not the case at all. And for those of you, one more time, who are not Christ followers, those of us who are, we really struggle a lot with who God says we are and the failures that we still have in our lives. So then, if I were not a Christ follower, I would say, well, wait a minute. How can you claim that you are a new person if you're still struggling with a lot of junk from your past and your old way of life? I want to take you now to the book of Romans chapter 3. This is one of the most important places in your Bible, I want you to notice something. Notice how many times in this text the Bible is going to talk about us being made right. It doesn't say we become right. It says we have been made right. Let's read this together. Verse 21, Romans 3. But God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. I love this next line. And this is true for everyone who keeps the Ten Commandments. Is that what it says? No. It says this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone is sin. See, the thing about it is, people might hear that message, well, God makes certain people right with him. Well, which people does he make right? Well, probably the people that are in the top 30%, top 50%. But the Bible says, no, God has made this true for everyone who believes because everyone has sinned and come short of the glory of God. When God looks down on us, they're not different classifications of sinners. You know, God's not looking at some of you, well, you're 10% sinners, some of you 30% sinners, some of you are bad to the bone. (laughs) No, (laughs) all of us are in the same boat. We all come short of God's perfect standard. So one more time, verse 23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God with undeserved kindness, big word, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are, one more time, made right with God. Uh Uh-oh, we have a time word now. 
People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. I've met people who claim to be Christ followers. Actually, I heard preachers preach this. They, they say that when you accept Christ, it's kind of like somebody making the down payment on your car and you got to make all the other payments. And if you get to the end of your life and your good outweighs your bad, maybe you get to go to heaven, but you won't know till the end. Now, this verse just annihilates that misunderstanding. The Bible says people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood. Can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are, and the Holy Spirit wants to really make sure we get this. So we are made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. So in other words, we all come as guilty sinners. We realize that Jesus Christ died for us. The God of creation calls for the light to shine out of the darkness because the spirit of God is grieving over what's happened in our lives and wants us to be God's daughters and sons. And then at the moment that we accept Christ and we believe, we are declared to be righteous. How can we be declared to be righteous? Well, it goes like this. That when Jesus died on the cross, our sins were taken and placed on him. His righteousness is clicked and dragged to our account. So consequently, God can look at us as being innocent. Because, hey, we don't even have double jeopardy in our court system. In other words, Jesus can't pay the penalty for our sins and us pay the penalty for our sins too. So at the moment when you trust Jesus Christ and you accept him, at that moment, our record goes under his account. It's paid for on the cross. His perfect record is transferred to us. This is amazing. But again, I want to deal with this. That's the legal aspect of this. Legally, we're innocent. Legally, we're new people. How does this work practically? And there are people that look at verses like this next one, and it's a very important verse. It's kind of a scary one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Now I'm going to stop that verse right there. Now here's the scary part of that. I'm guessing you found yourself there somewhere. <laughs> I mean, that's a real different kind of list of sins. I mean, it goes everywhere from people who sleep with someone who's not their mate to gossips to greedy, wishing we had stuff we don't have. So I'm guessing that somewhere along that list, your life and my life pops up somewhere. And Paul is saying, look, people, who's, people who live this kind of life, they won't be in heaven. And he said, such were some of you, but notice, look, look, look at what he says next. He says, such is, were some of you, but you were, look at the verbs here, washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Now, why is that important? Because a lot of us would read that verse where Paul has this list of sins, and he says these people won't be in heaven, and such were some of you, but you just overcame the sin, and now you're in a good, good place. Now, do we really think that, let's just say a person was greedy, and they meet Jesus Christ, do you think they'll never be tempted to wish they had something that they shouldn't have? Let's just say that a person is into pornography and their life is characterized by pornography. 
do you think that person is never going to be tempted to view something that he shouldn't view? I mean, the truth, the truth be told, those things are struggles. But look at the verbs that were used. God said, that's what you were, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. Now, we know about washed, but we don't use the other two words. Sanctified means to be set apart as in, in, a, in a group. In other words, when we accept Christ, God sets us apart and says, well, she belongs to me now. She's mine. She's been washed. She's been sanctified. And then justified, God means he declares us innocent of that word. So consequently, when Jesus Christ comes into our lives, we become different people. And God makes us different by washing us by faith in the blood of Christ by setting us apart as now belonging to him and being part of his family and justifying us, making us right in his sight. Now, I want to tell you, and this is not politically correct, but I got to say this because I'm concerned about your eternal life and not political correctness. This world knows it can't offer this. And we're in a culture today where the world says, how dare you say anybody can change? Because it just can't offer this. It's, it's off the table. It doesn't even know where to go. But God can go past the point and make the, make the point and say, look, all of us were sinners. We were all into something that ultimately would take us all to hell. But God loved us and he commanded the light to shine in us. And we've been washed and we've been set apart as belonging to God. And he's actually declared us innocent even though we are guilty of many sins. Now here's the thing. How many Christ followers have given up because they invite Jesus Christ to come into their life, but they just can't seem to get over some temptations in their lives. I mean, I've, I've heard preachers talk about how that you became a new person and suddenly, you know, this person is just completely transformed with no issues. As if they just suddenly became this full-fledged, fully matured Christ follower. Maybe it's time for us to pay attention to the word new. Because scripture tells us we are born again. Well, we have a word for a new human being, don't we? I mean, what would be the word that identifies a new human being? The word is baby. See, that's the thing. When we accept Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us we are babies. We're not fully matured. We're just getting started. I mean, I remember Jonathan as our oldest. When he was born and we brought him home from the hospital, I didn't walk into the house and say, okay, Jonathan, this is where we live and that's your room right there. And, and the second door down your left, that's the bathroom. I didn't tell him, you know, the kitchen, if you want to make a snack, see the nail there, that's the car keys. You get hungry in the middle of the night and take the car down to Safeway. We were in Texas. No, he was a baby. And see, I think that's the thing. Many of us, we come to Jesus Christ. We come with all the baggage and all the junk and all the stuff that we, and, and, and like we accept Christ and then instantly we're not the person that we want to be. And it's like, well, maybe it didn't work for me. So now let's go finally to the, how do I go forward question? Because I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. I don't want to leave you with the idea that yes, when you accept Christ, God declares you to be a new person, and then after all, after that, you can just go do anything you want to do, and it doesn't have any consequences. That's not at all the Christian message. There's a, a journey that takes place, 
And this journey of becoming a new person is spelled out for us in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And I want want you to hear this. The Bible says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, listen to that language, new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So consequently, when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we still have the old person, but now we have a new identity. And God is saying, Make the conscious choice to not wear the old lifestyle, but to wear the the clothing of the new person. It's Sunday morning for those of you who are watching around the world here in Wichita. But, you know, before we came to church, we all decided what we're going to wear. And have you ever thought about the fact that when you pick what you're wearing, it has a lot to do with what you're going to do that day? For instance, some of you guys have some coveralls in your garage. They hang in your garage because your wife won't let you bring them in. They are filthy, caked with undescribable crud. And they should have been washed five or six years ago. There's so much body odor in them, if you took them out in your neighborhood, it would fumigate and kill all the mosquitoes. I mean, they, they are wretched. But you keep them because every once in a while you put them on because you're going to change the oil in your car or you're going to do some kind of repair work or grungy work. If, on the other hand, the same guy has a first date with the woman who might be just that special woman, he's not going to wear those coveralls if he's a smart man (laughs) and he has any hope whatsoever. He's going to find his best outfit. Now, if he's a New York City kind of guy, it's going to be high fashion. If he's a Dallas kind of guy, it's going to be the right boots and the right jeans. But he's going to put on his very best, and it's going to be his very best because of what he's going to do. He's going to have a date with that lady that may be the special lady. Ladies, when a bride gets married, she doesn't wear, you know, the... Workout clothes that have holes in them, that kind of thing. It's got to be the right dress and the right accessories because of what she's going to do. And that's all the Bible is saying here is you're a new person in Jesus Christ. You know what? As a Christ follower, if you want to go out and live in the old way, I mean, if you're like the Beverly Hillbillies and you want to make your own soap and cut down the telephone pole thinking it's a tree, if that's what you want to do, you can do that. But why? God is saying, put on the new self. Now, for someone, someone could say, well, that's a little too existential for me. So the Bible gets very practical. Let's read the next verse. And what we're going to see here is this contrast between the old person and the new person. God says, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief... Quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul and abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And then chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, go out and imitate God. Well, that's what we do. See, the reason why, if you're a skeptic and you've had a hard time making sense of Christ followers, the reason why we give you so much trouble 
is that so many times, even though God has made us to be new people, we choose to put on the, the grunge, grungy old dirty clothes. And it's not God's fault. Please don't blame God for it. And, and, and don't, don't think about what is possible. You know, don't fail to think about what's possible because we let you down. We struggle. We bounce back and forth. If you're a Christ follower here today, our ultimate challenge with this message is to learn to live like who we are. Stephen told me a story this week that I really enjoyed. He was telling about um, a well-to-do couple here in the United States who adopted a little girl who had been in a horrific orphanage somewhere in Asia. And when they brought her home, and they lived in a quite elegant home, they were showing her all through the house. And finally they got to her room, and they had everything that a family could imagine a little girl would want. And it was like paradise, this little girl. And they said the only thing they would ask is that she kept her room clean. But they noticed that she didn't just keep her room clean. It was pristine like it had been scrubbed with a toothbrush. And the family was getting a little concerned that maybe the little girl was trying a little too hard to keep the room clean. And so they, they asked her why she was pressing so hard. And she said, well, I was afraid that you wouldn't want me and that you wouldn't let me stay here. And they said, oh, baby, you're so misunderstood. We didn't ask you to keep your room clean so that we would love you or so that we would keep you. We asked you, ask you to keep your room clean because that's what we do as a family. And most of all, we want you to live in a beautiful room. I think there are a lot of people who heard the Christian life that way. And we let God down. And here's what happens to us. When we first start out, we're like, well, maybe if I do everything right, then God will keep me. That doesn't last very long, and it isn't long before we throw up our hands and say, to heck with it. And maybe we don't leave Christianity or the church, but we just sort of agree at that point to bump along the bottom because we don't think that God can be pleased. Do we hear God saying, I love you. You belong to me. I want you to have a life that you enjoy. And I want you to please me because I love you. And so consequently, don't put on the filthy self. Put on the clean self because you're going to a wedding. You're going to do great things today. There was a song that was popular the year that Mary Alice and I got married. In fact, it was probably one of the first worship songs. And I wish I could quote you a more modern song, but I don't know that we have a song today that says what this song says. And so I just want to share with you the lyrics of a song you've probably never heard. The song was called Learning to Live Like a Child of the King. It says, learning to live like a child of the king, learning to lose just to find everything, accepting his wealth though I had nothing to bring, learning to live free and happy, learning to bathe in the warmth of his love, spirit-filled calmness in a world I'm not of, being an heir to all I do not deserve, learning to master by the way that I serve, being dependent on his blessing reserve. I gave him my soul. He's got total control. I'm learning to be all he wants me to be, learning to feel what it means to be free. I'm learning to live life with great certainty, learning to live free and happy. 
I'm learning to be all he wants me to be. Grace so amazing, we sang it today, is the new song I sing. I love this line. And sharing my song with all the beggars I bring, learning to live free and happy. If you're a Christ follower today, I want you to know what you got. I want you to know what you own. You're a new person. Let's learn to live like children of the king. You're a princess. You're a prince. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I'm not sure I'm in on this. I want to be a new person. And and now let's ask the question, suppose I wanted to become a new person. How would I do that? What would I do? I think this is probably the oldest story I've ever told at New Spring. I think I was telling it while I was here in my 20s. But the story is told about a particular American city, and there was a time as American cities were developing, modernizing, that there were parcels of ground in the middle of downtown that had been owned by families for generations. And of course, either the city had to have strong eminent domain laws or the entities that wanted the land would have to pay exorbitant prices. But there was, I can't remember, I want to say it was Cincinnati, but I'm not sure. There was a particular American city and there was a man who owned a large parcel of ground land land downtown and he had this wretched old shack on it and for years companies had tried to buy his land and he wasn't going to sell it. There was one particular business that wanted to buy the land to put up a skyscraper and they had made him all kinds of offers and he wouldn't accept it in each each offer and he got tired of them and offering him money and finally the business said to him okay tell us the figure you would accept and he named an insane figure so big that he thought it would stop the discussion but to his amazement the company said we'll, we'll bring you a check at that moment he began to feel guilty he, he thought he had gouged these people. And so when the time came for the actual signing of the contract, the guy who owned the property, guilty feeling, said to the buyer, you know, uh, I've done a lot of work here to get this house ready for you. I fixed some of the windows. I've you know, oiled some of the hinges. I've got a little new wood here, here and there. And he said to the buyer, I think you'll enjoy living here, you and your family. And thankfully, the buyer was a kind and gracious man. He had some plans with him, and he rolled them, unrolled them. And he showed this guy a magnificent glass and steel skyscraper. And he said, sir, I don't want to buy your land for what's on it. I want to buy your land for what I'm going to do with it. And so if you're here and you want to be a new person, you've got to realize that what God wants is he wants to have your life to show what he can do with it. And if you're here today, you may say, I don't want to accept Jesus Christ, but wouldn't you hate to miss out on being the person God wants you to be? So here's what I'm going to do. If you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These are not magic words. We'll pray them slowly so that you can decide if you want to say these to God. Would you pray with me, please? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I accept and trust Jesus as my savior. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for forgiving my sin. Thank you for making me a new person. In Jesus' name. 
hey, if you just pray with me, South and North Auditorium here, all over our campus, we have info centers. All you have to do is go to them and say, I prayed with Mark, and there's a gift box ready for you. It's got a Bible like I preached from, a book I wrote, and some other cool stuff. It's not as great as salvation, but it's just as free. So all you have to do is say, I prayed with Mark. Thank you. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.